Tech Podcast with Accessibility Sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 57. Today we're going to be talking about accessibility. Surprise, surprise. But we're not going to talk about the accessibility of platforms like iOS and Android. We're going to talk about the accessibility of content on those mobile platforms. And to do that, I have somebody who has developed a lot of mobile accessibility tools, as well as advised many people and organizations about how to make their content accessible. And he is Paul J. Adam. He is the UX accessibility lead at Atlassian. He's also an accessibility consultant for a wide range of industries and organizations. He focuses on mobile accessibility for Android and iOS and modern web, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS3, WayArea, WCAG 2.1, Section 508, accessibility, and he's based, like me, in Austin, Texas. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Shelley. Thanks for inviting me. It's good to talk to you. I really wanted to talk to you after I saw a presentation that you gave at the recent Nobility Conference about a tool set you have called Accessibility Tools. And we'll get to how all that works uh, a little bit later. But the reason that I was intrigued to talk to you is that I think people think about web accessibility in terms of desktop environments and how to make the HTML work for a screen reader like JAWS or VoiceOver on the Mac or NVDA. Or, and and I, I think people specifically address the mobile accessibility environment less. Obviously, there are similarities because they're based on some of the same technologies like HTML and JavaScript and the like. But I was really interested in the idea of focusing on accessibility of content, how to make it accessible, and how to test to make sure that it is as accessible as it possibly can be. So I guess my first question would be, is there a significant difference when you think about making content accessible for a mobile environment versus, say, a desktop browser environment? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's a common question um, when people first start getting into mobile they kind of, you know, they do treat it a bit separately. Um, you have to get very specific. So if it's HTML content, um, then really the accessibility techniques are the same, you know, using HTML, uh, JavaScript, and ARIA. The fix is the same, um, but you'll find there will be some differences on mobile, um, like with certain things like custom controls. Like one common example is a custom slider which you can make out of um, ARIA and JavaScript, or you can use a native input type equals range element. Um, And most people, you know, because native controls don't look a certain way, people like to customize them to make them look uh, to match their brand or make them look fancy. And um, that custom control, it, it will be perfectly accessible on desktop with the desktop screen reader and keyboard but then on mobile, it won't be accessible um, because when you make a custom control accessible on desktop with JavaScript, you have to use key press events for the arrow keys and things like page up, page down, home and the end key. And you can't do that with iOS, uh, mobile Safari. Um, it only really works with click events. It doesn't work with key press events. So there's no way for um, you know the voiceover user to adjust that slider on mobile. Um, it's not something people think about very often because um, they go straight to you know the custom controls. Now, if you built that custom slider off of the native input type equals range, then it will be accessible on mobile with the mobile screen reader, and you don't have to write any JavaScript for that. 
there's just, I guess, maybe some limitations. Um, like it's harder to, you don't have a native slider that has uh, two thumbs on the slider. Um, so sometimes I have a demo where I've taken two native sliders and kind of put them on top of each other in CSS. So it looks like one slider with two thumbs, but it's actually two. But that that is accessible on mobile. Um, and another one to talk about is drag and drop. Um, you'll see when someone makes drag and drop accessible for for the for web for desktop, um, they don't think about mobile and how how are you actually going to operate that drag and drop with uh, like voiceover on an iPhone. Um, so that'll be forgotten about. But yeah, I mean, I focus on mobile a lot. So all the demos I create, I I start out just black and white. Really don't worry about the CSS too much at first. Just the keyboard accessibility, screen reader accessibility, and also mobile. So that's kind of like, you know, a third thing people do forget about. They'll think about screen reader and keyboard on desktop, and they won't think about mobile at all. But I've seen, you know, sites that will be produced and they're, they don't, they're not accessible on mobile. So you really have to go back and do a lot of rework if you would have just, you know, followed like mobile first principle, accessibility first, and, and do that all at the beginning. Does the idea of responsive design where you build a site that will work on desktop or mobile or adjust itself to work on mobile, does that help or hinder accessibility or is that even too broad a, a question? That's a good question. Yeah, it helps. I mean, uh, like I like to tell folks that responsive design is required by WCAG 2.1. They have the reflow requirement. So your site has to work at um, a, tw- two, uh, a 320 pixel wide browser. It's basically the smallest iPhone width. Um, so that that's now, you know, required, it wasn't required in WCAG 2.0. Um, but yeah, like, you know, before responsive design kind of one, there used to be desktop sites and mobile sites and they would be different. And, and, you know, that, that was kind of a good idea because when you design for mobile, you're designing for the small screen and you can really target it and make it, you know, look maybe mobile specific. Um, but then responsive design, that philosophy really won over. Um, and now you don't really have like a mobile specific website. It's really just the responsive site most of the time. Um, and you know, to tell a website is responsive, you just increase the text size until you see the hamburger menu on the site. And, um, you know, most of the time those hamburger menus are not accessible. So that's like, I have one of those demos and one of the first things I always check, uh, when I'm testing for mobile responsive accessibility. And you talked about specific things like like sliders and and items that are common and mobile or that you have to adjust for mobile are ios and android can can you say mobile generally and un, be understood to mean ios and, and android or does individual platforms have specific requirements you have to take into account well i mean yeah mobile is now just ios and android it used to be blackberry a long time ago and then last <laughs> I used to, I mean, I had to do a few accessibility things. It was really hard, but yeah, BlackBerry died off. Um, but, but I mean, iOS versus Android, yeah. are there differences from your There are, iOS? there are differences. Yeah. yeah. The, the biggest one is like keyboard accessibility. Android's always been keyboard accessible. Um, you know, it started out, it had like a D-pad where you kind of use buttons to control it. And when iOS came out, it, it was just pure touchscreen. Um, so there was, iOS never had an ability to navigate a website or an app using the keyboard only 
Um, you'd have to turn on assistive technology like voiceover or switch control. Um, but so in so like on a web in a web browser, what that means is that on Android, you do have the key press events and you can make things accessible kind of like you do for desktop. Um, but then on iOS, you can't do that. Um, the, the bigger difference is, too, is that I, Android is kind of, you know, a little bit maybe buggier or uh, more, you know, it doesn't have as much accessibility support like ARIA support or things for data tables or complex data tables. You'll just see less robust accessibility API support on Android and they improve all the time. And then you also have two different browsers on Android. You could use Firefox or Chrome and they have different um, rendering engines and will have different accessibility bugs or support. Uh, but you know, Chrome is really the main one now and you don't see much of Firefox anymore. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, and even in, in iOS, you can install different browsers, but is everything folks typically do with mobile accessibility on iOS keyed to Safari? Does anybody pay attention to the fact that there is Chrome and Firefox and other browsers available for iOS? Yeah, that's a good question. And, um, you know, the big difference is that Apple really doesn't allow those other browsers to have their own rendering engine. So Firefox is actually Safari underneath. And it's usually like one version behind uh, mobile Safari and same with Chrome. So they don't, you can kind of ignore on iOS, you can kind of ignore Firefox and Chrome because they really are Safari, just an older Safari as, as far as when it comes to accessibility testing. So that makes things a little bit easier. You can just stick with mobile Safari from Apple and, and don't worry about the other ones. What about apps that have their own browsers, say a Twitter client or Pocket or Instapaper or something like that, where your choice is either to dump a link into Safari or into the browser? And as just as a user, I've noticed that a lot of times the accessibility in those browsers that are part of apps is really different than Safari. And so I guess the what about question is, are there things people who are building apps like that should be doing that aren't that they aren't doing for accessibility purposes? Um, yeah, so I, like, so if you visit a link in Twitter and, and you're still inside the Twitter app, like things that bother me about that is like on my Safari, I'll have um, the reader view that's automatic to get rid of all the ads and just show you the article. But Facebook and Twitter don't kind of have that capability. Um, cause they're kind of like on the Safari web view that is, I would say maybe like a year older too. I think that's the issue is that, you know, that view is, is not the same as the, you know, actual mobile Safari view. So you, you'll see some bugs and differences there. Like one thing is like once Apple, they kind of eliminate the ability for developers to disable pinch to zoom on a website, you see, you could, you know, block that with a meta viewport, uh, attribute. Um, but now you can't do that on mobile Safari on iOS, but inside the other browsers like the Facebook and the Twitter browser, that still works. And, and our, I don't know if it still does now, but recently it did, and they could still disable pinch to zoom there. So is there anything developers of, of websites should think about in terms of the fact that some of the, sometimes their links are going to open in, in browsers like that? Or is there anything they can do even? Um, I don't think you have to worry about it too much. I mean, you're really just supposed to, you know, follow the normal desktop accessibility things you do for HTML, um, and ARIA and all that. Um, it, you know, it's just, just being aware that if someone, 
you know, you, your pinch the zoom could still be disabled, like within those apps, uh, browser. So that's just something to think about. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by Technology Untangled. So I have way too many podcasts in my podcatcher, but I love them and I'm always excited to find a new one. Hosted by Michael Bird, Technology Untangled is a show that deciphers tech's rapid evolutions with one simple question in mind. What's really going to shape our future and what's going to end up in the bargain bin with the floppy disk? So I listened to an episode about quantum computing that was really fascinating because I've done a fair bit of reading about quantum in the past, but uh, this show explained it in detail. It defined all the terms, and it did so in a way that I felt like I was getting accurate and not dumbed-down information. It was, it was really great. So I feel like uh, anybody who is interested in learning about a technology that maybe they don't necessarily know or they want to know sort of the ramifications of it beyond their own experience would enjoy this show. And to give you an idea of episode topics you can expect, a deep dive into 5G, which untangles the who, what, whys, and hows of 5G, and what it means for you. How supercomputers are helping us with the fight against COVID by sifting through billions of molecules to look for drugs to repurpose, along with AI and the future of jobs. And episodes on energy innovation and mission to Mars. You're spoiled for choice. Past guests include people from Google, Sainsbury's, Aston Martin, Red Bull Racing, Good Hilly Earth Station, The New York Times, and Nokia. Michael Bird has interviewed over 50 super interesting people this year. Think technologists, scientists, academics, developers, futurists, and IT generalists. And in the final episode of Technology Untangled, you can hear about the one innovation almost all the guests couldn't stop talking about, as well as learning how to prepare for tomorrow's innovations today. Search for Technology Untangled wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Our thanks to Technology Untangled for their support of this show and Relay FM. So let's say somebody has done a little bit of learning. Maybe they've even tried to make their websites accessible from a WCAG point of view. Maybe they've read the guidelines. Maybe they've just read a few tutorials or whatever, but they want to sort of expand their, raise their game up a little bit and be more mobile accessible. Are there tutorials out there or things that they should be reading or, or learning to sort of get up to speed? Um, I mean, like for a specific tutorial, I can't really think off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I know like on my website, I have presentations. If you look at my Apple iCloud presentations, you can see various mobile ones. So you, you, you probably can learn some stuff there pretty fast. Uh, I think the best way to learn is just to, to do it, like to turn on voiceover and talk back on your Android, uh, voiceover on your iOS and just start doing the accessibility testing. Um, and you know, you know, or if you're trying to learn accessible develop development, start building demos, like, you know, build accessible examples. Um, and another thing I do like on my side, I have some guides, which are good and bad examples. Um, so, you know, learning accessibility by testing good and bad examples with your screen reader and keyboard, and then, you know, look, inspecting the code, understanding why is this good? Why is this bad? Um, and on that note, like one thing I usually tell people to do is try some of these good and bad examples. Like one that I like is, um, uh, accessibility university 3.0. 
and it's a demo site. It has an inaccessible homepage and an accessible homepage, and they also have a list of all the accessibility issues. Um, and that's really good to you know test with your mobile screen reader or your desktop screen reader, or both, and look at the code and you know see see why it's good and bad. And are there things other than specifically mobile items like the sliders that you talked about at the beginning? Are there are there things that seem to trip people up on mobile or things or are kinds of accessibility issues that people ought to particularly watch for when they're learning? Um, well, I mean, I know some things might not be good for mobile. Sometimes like sticky headers, sticky footers that take up space. Um, some people don't like. Um, like auto loading content where you start to scroll down and then it loads more content in the view. Um, so you may have to manage focus and set focus to the beginning of that new content. Um, anytime you're dealing with building web apps or websites, um, like using uh, single page applications, it's kind of like people used to call it Ajax where instead of clicking on a link, you're loading in content dynamically with JavaScript. And sometimes people will create things where you have a screen by screen process and they're not managing the focus of that. Um, so the screen reader and keyboard focus may be on this old hidden content or content that disappeared. Um, so, you know, that that's something you see where people aren't really thinking about, you know, the accessibility of that. Well, let's talk about accessibility testing. And, and here, I think even people who understand what accessibility guidelines are about and may have may have looked at them may not have dug into accessibility testing and kind of how it works and best practices and and we're going to get to some the tool that you you have for for mobile accessibility testing but give people sort of the basics of how they should go about thinking about accessibility testing and then what they should should do going forward from that yeah um accessibility testing you could break it down into the different types of testing techniques. Like you have automated testing where you use the automatic tools like Axe or Wave or CodeSniffer. Um, and then you have manual testing where you, and that can be broken down in manual keyboard testing, keyboard only where you, you're tabbing around using arrow keys to focus on everything and activate it and checking the focus order. And then screen reader test, manual screen reader testing, where you're kind of doing the same thing as you did with the keyboard, but now with the screen reader on. Um, and, you know, the screen reader has different methods of navigating, like semantic element navigation, like headings and landmarks and links and all that. Um, but you have to do all of those. Um, sometimes folks maybe hope that an autom automated testing can solve you know, take care of more testing than the manual, but really most of it is going to be manual testing. But um, I would recommend, you know, you do the automated first and you fix all the automated errors because they're simple things like images missing alt text, color contrast, forms missing labels. Um, you don't want to have to find that or report it all during manual testing because manual testing takes a lot longer. Um, and you know, you don't want the manual testers spend their time reporting hundreds of issues that an automated tool could have found. And an automated tool has the advantage of giving somebody a quick look at their site who, who may not be a particularly expert or experienced screen reader 
uh, user. But then with manual testing, you're going to need a sort of a higher level of awareness of what the screen reader does and how it works and how to navigate, right? Yes, that's true. So automated tools are really great for when you're just starting getting into accessibility. Like the Wave tools, one of the first tools I've ever used from WebAIM. That's where I learned about accessibility first. Um, but, you know, the first time I ever turned on the screen reader, JAWS, I had no idea how to use it. Um, like I was moving my mouse around the web page and wondering, like, why is it not talking? What am I doing? I didn't realize you had to actually tab around to everything or, or just press keys. Um, so, yeah, eventually I learned all that um, through a lot of trial and error and working at different jobs in accessibility. Um, but there's a lot to learn with manual testing. It can kind of be a little scary or overwhelming maybe, but um, you just have to start trying. It's, it's actually really easy on mobile um, because there's less to do. There's no keyboard commands. You just turn on voiceover and you just touch what you want or swipe around and, and double tap to activate. There's not much. There's the rotor where you rotate, but you don't even necessarily have to use the rotor too much. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can tell people start with automated tools like Wave and Axe and start with mobile accessibility, manual screen reader testing and keyboard testing is real simple. Most people know how to do that. Although in Safari, you have to turn off the option plus tab as a default to make it just tab to tab to all the elements. And that trips people up a lot when they first get started. So Wave and Axe are on desktop, not mobile, right? That's correct. Yes, those are extensions for uh, the Chrome and Firefox browsers. Axe is kind of um, also available as a framework, uh, JavaScript library that can be run in any browser. Um, like I have Axe embedded inside my Alley tools, um, so that I can use it in Safari because there is no extent. There's no Axe extension for Safari. To somebody who wants their site to be accessible on mobile. Would you advise them to start on desktop and sort of work through those issues and then do mobile testing? Or, or how, how would you advise that if, if, if obviously they want both kinds of platforms to be accessible? But, but how far can you get if you sort of start on desktop and then work your way down to, to mobile? Yeah, I mean, you can get really far on desktop. I think you can start either place you want. Most people will start with desktop. Um, but yeah, like you have access to more automated tools on desktop. And you can test responsive design on a desktop. You don't necessarily have to pull out your phone. You right. can just make the hamburger menu appear and start tabbing around and all that and run your automated tools. You can inspect the code very easily because a lot of accessibility testing is also manual code inspection. And, you know, if you understand uh, what the problem is in the code, you don't even need a screen reader to figure out that problem. Um but yeah, eventually you, you, you can't just you can't ever forget about mobile, because if you do, you'll find all these things that you thought might work on mobile, but don't actually work. But let me let me ask you about Alley Tools. So that's a mobile accessibility tester. And is it as full featured as the, the desktop ones or what, what, would you, what would you say Alley Tools is all about? What does it do? Yeah, well, one thing it doesn't do, it does not test native apps um, because sometimes people buy it and they're hoping it tests native apps. But it, it does, there's no ability, like Apple won't allow you to look at the source code of a native app. So all it does test is web views, so, you know, web HTML sites that you um, type in. And you can, it is, it's pretty much the same as the desktop version. Uh, it has the same code because um, the, the code that does the testing is all written in JavaScript. Um, and that's nice because I can put it into both apps 
both you know the extensions and use the same code um there's some sort of limitations or like the packaging on the desktop is much easier to use in safari because i've got a right click context menu to access all the tools real fast and there's a, a toolbar button at the top of the browser to access them there as well whereas on the iphone or ipad you have to like go to the share button if you're if you're in safari you can go to share button and you see like the actions and then you pick um, the one you want to activate or you run alley tools through the native app itself. And then that has its own web view inside it in the iOS app. And you visit the web page you want to test and then you hit the plus button to pick the tools you want. Um, for me personally, I do all my testing really uh, from the Safari extension on the desktop um, because I don't I don't typically like pull up my phone to run automated tools too much. Mostly I'll do manual testing on my phone. Um, but I could see it kind of be useful if someone likes to do things from their iPad a lot, or they just, you know, don't have access to the, uh, to desktop computer, you know, and just want to test things from, from their iPhone. So you're saying it's basically easier to test from a desktop. It's not necessarily that the features are, that there are more features. It's just kind of easier to do. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's true. Mm -hmm. And then Alley Tools is only on the on iOS. It's not on Android. No, it's not on Android. I've, I've never built an app for Android or sold apps for Android. I'm not, I'm not an Android user. I, I know about all the accessibility of Android because I like to focus on mobile, but that's as far as I go. So what are some of the things you can, can do with Alley Tools, just to give people an idea? What it, what it is is... Um, if you ever heard of JavaScript bookmarklets, they are another accessibility testing tool. They they do other things. They just basically run JavaScript on the web page you're in, and and that's kind of how like Wave is built. Similar, I mean, it just it's built off of JavaScript, and so is Axe. Most of all these web testing tools are built off of JavaScript. Um, and so when I first started creating testing tools, I created them as bookmarklets. Because those work in any browser, including Android or an iPhone um, or Firefox or whatever. And um, but the problem with bookmarklets is you have to run them kind of one at a time. And when you install them, you have to install them one at a time. And then I I had a collection of maybe like ten or so bookmarklets, and then um, started figuring out that I could just you know combine this into an extension within Safari and and actually sell it. So that was exciting um, to be able to sell something on the App Store that's accessibility related because I've I've never had like an accessibility app or anything. Um, so um, yeah, so what it does is combine all the bookmarklets like testing images, alt text. Like when you run, you can you go to a web page and you right click and you hit images and it just displays the alt attribute values for all the images on the page visually so that um, like a sighted tester can test for proper alt text on a page without having to use their screen reader or without having to right click and hit inspect and, and check the code. Um, and also things like headings, you right click and you hit headings and then it injects the JavaScript on the page. It shows you what are your headings and what are the heading levels. Um, so you could check if um, some headings are you know, skipping levels or they're, they're supposed to be headings and they're not. Um, and that's, you can do the same sort of testing with the screen reader. You could put focus on each element and see if it's a heading, what the level is. 
Um, but you can't do that like all at once. If you have a page with a bunch of headings, you can just instantly see what are all the headings, what are all the levels. And I have other ones like uh, for forms to tell you if the form inputs are labeled um, for ARIA to display all the ARIA for data tables. The data tables one is pretty complex. Um, like it shows you all the different accessibility properties of the table and then you can determine if it's accessible. Um, and other ones like tab index, title attributes, almost all the HTML properties, attributes that you test for accessibility. I have, you know, a testing tool that'll look at that. Um, and then what Alley Tools also does is combine some of my favorite uh, other tools like Wave, Axe, um, Totally, HTML Code Sniffer, and it packages them into Alley Tools as well. Um, because I use these tools all the time, you know, for work uh, and accessibility testing. And um, it just makes them quick. You know, I built it for myself, so it's quick for me to get to them. Like I can wave a page real fast. Um, and then I don't I didn't have Axe inside Safari. Um, I don't really use Chrome much. Axe is only in Chrome or Firefox. So I kind of built it because there's also no you know, accessibility testing tools for Safari besides um, JavaScript bookmarklets. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by FastMail. FastMail is putting you first by prioritizing privacy and usability. Unlike some other email services that can sell your information, FastMail keeps advertisers out of your inbox by putting you in control of your data. So you can focus on your workflow, knowing that your privacy is protected with a business model that leaves advertisers out. FastMail works great with the built-in mail, calendar, and contact apps on macOS and iOS, in addition to offering a great web client. The open source elements put you in control of your workflow with all the tools to do things your way. So you can set up processing systems that eliminate unwanted email and prioritize what's important automatically. So a lot of people like to say that uh, email is not as important to them as it used to be. People don't like email. But I, I think most folks find that they, they need it, and that's certainly the truth for me. I don't always have a choice about what communication method I'm going to use with people, especially that I don't communicate with regularly. And having the ability to process my email efficiently is super important for that reason. For over 20 years, FastMail has been keeping customer data private. It's one of the longest operating and most trusted email services in the world. To be part of the very best in email, go directly to the source and try FastMail. Just go to fastmail.com parallel and get started today. That's fastmail.com parallel for a free month and 10% discount off your first year. Our thanks to FastMail for their support of this show. As somebody who's trying to learn more about how to use these tools effectively, one of the challenges I always have is figuring out, well, what's the best tool for the job? And some of them do a lot of the same things, but are there tools that are particularly good at particular things? I mean, you've, you've bookmarked them all together. You've put them all together in Alley Tools, so clearly they each have different strengths for you. Yes, yes. Like... Um... I, you know, I like wave because it shows you visually the errors on the page. It puts an icon and you can click on that and explains it. I think it's very user friendly for designers or people who aren't super technical. Um, Axe, I think, is more for developers. Like when you run Axe in my tool, 
you have to display the JavaScript console. So you have to display the web inspector and that, that already is getting pretty technical. Um, and, and it doesn't have a user interface. It, it displays the output in the console, um, you know, and you have to expand all the disclosure triangles to read, but like X, the X will tell you, you know, if there's any, um, contrast issues or duplicate IDs or, you know, all the things X tests for, and it kind of changes what their rule set tests for. Um, but, um, X is almost everywhere. So X and wave are the two main ones that I like to recommend to folks. And they're, and they're pretty different. Um, wave, wave, you can't just use wave cause it'll tell you there's maybe like three or four errors. Whereas X will tell you there's maybe 20 or 30. Um, so wave maybe misses things. Um, X also, you know, can have false positives, even though, you know, it's not technically supposed to, but it can have a lot of noise as well. Um, totality is different than, I think it's good for doing headings. It tells you if your heading levels are skipping any levels. It's got a nice interface. It's also good for contrast testing. It shows you the contrast ratios in line with the page. So I, a lot of things I like these tools for is displaying the error on your HT, on your page and then taking a screenshot because um, the errors are kind of displayed very visual. And then you get that screenshot and you put it into your JIRA ticket uh, or your accessibility report. And I'm real big on screenshots when I create accessibility reports. Um, so I always like to have, you know, a screenshot or, or more of the problem and different tools will take screenshots better than others. Um, like X isn't really the best for taking screenshots, but wave and totality are, um, HTML code sniffer. That's good for duplicate IDs. And, uh, one thing code sniffer does it test hidden content that's hidden in HTML, whereas some tools ignore hidden content like X and wave, I think ignore hidden content. Um, sometimes you do want to ignore hidden content, but other tools will find it. And, you know, there's no reason to not fix your HTML code just because the element's hidden. You probably still want to fix it. Um, so that's, and then one other one I have is the validate the DOM, which is, um, just Steve Faulkner's bookmarklet that validates the DOM. It sends your HTML code to the validator, um, your DOM code. And then the validator does all kinds of accessibility testing. It can be a little noisy because it tests for a lot of other things like incorrect HTML usage, um, but you really should fix everything the validator tells you and then you'll have much cleaner code. Yeah, I discovered that Axe wasn't exactly uh, the one I wanted to use when I needed to share issues on a website with other members of the team who have no, who, who barely can speak HTML, much less. Yeah. It was like, and I was like, I was running it. It was like, okay, you have 65 errors. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's one thing I can deal with that, but how do I explain them in a way they'll understand? So yeah, I've moved on from that. But, and it's also, there's your argument for going back to the desktop. If you're going to use Axe, I, I don't think I do that on my phone. A lot um, of the tools will tell you how to fix the problem, but sometimes yeah. like Axe will give you five different ways to fix a problem. And some of them are not the way I would suggest to fix the problem. So, you know, it can be definitely confusing. In terms of color contrast, this is just something that occurred to me. Is that just specified out in WCAG regardless of what kind of display situation you have? In other words, it, does it care whether you're on a mobile platform versus a desktop platform that might have, you know, any number of different displays attached to it? Or is it just basically just WCAG looks at it and goes, oh, that's not far enough away from one another. It, it's, it's wrong. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how good your display is or how poor the display is. Um, it's really just the contrast ratio. 
as calculated by, you know, the accessibility tools that you use. And I just use, I just go with what the automated tools say, um, like Axe and Totally, Code Sniffer, they all do contrast testing. Um, so in Wave 2, um, and then... Something, and then there's manual contrast testing where I use the color contrast analyzer, which is spelled with the British spelling for color and analyzer. That's how you can find it if you Google it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's where you use an eyedropper to pick the foreground and background colors and then manually test the contrast ratio. And it'll tell you if it passes or fails at whatever level of wet keg. Um, and there's also non-text contrast, which has a different ratio um, than text contrast. And non-text contrast is a newer requirement of WCAG 2.1 for non-text contrast. Do you get much into helping people figure out what to do once they've got a bunch of test results? Obviously, you want to fix the HTML, but if you have a systemic problem with a website or if your website is heavily CMS-dependent, uh, it you know mitigating those issues might be more than just digging in and, and changing a couple of HTML codes or adding alt tech alt uh, text to images. I mean, what what's a, a way to help people who may not have done this before think about how to actually deal with all of this data that they get about how their website is not accessible? Yeah, yeah, that's a real common challenge when folks get an accessibility report with a hundred issues or more. They always will ask, you know, how do we prioritize this? First, they'll ask, like, do we really have to do all these? Are these actually required? Right. And usually the answer is yes, because I, I don't even really report best practices much anymore because, you know, people don't necessarily want to do it when they get 100 WCAG failures. Um, but that's the first thing you can do. If someone reports best practices, because a lot of accessibility people still do that, and I do sometimes, you can say, well, maybe we don't fix the best practices yet because they're not legally required. Or if it's like a WCAG level AAA, those aren't legally required yet. You just have to do level A and AA. Um, and then in the WCAG levels, so you, to prioritize, you could do it by levels if you want, because level A are more critical issues like screen reader bugs, um, keyboard accessibility failures, whereas level AA is things like contrast, or the keyboard focus outline being visible, where that's not necessarily like a blocker issue that would stop someone from using the website. So you could fix A's first and then double A. Um, but sometimes it's also easy to target simple things. Like if you want quick wins, like contrast, you could say, let's just fix all our contrasts. It's really not that hard. It's just CSS tweaks um, and designers understand contrast very well. Um, so you could solve all that, or you can say, let's just fix all the image alt text. Cause that's one of the most basic things you learn in accessibility about the alt attribute and all that. And, um, and people are going to be kind of excited, you know, fixing all the image alt text. Um, and then, or you could look at it like, let's look at the critical user flows or anything dealing with money. Um, because if you're selling something, then that's where you're going to get targeted with a lawsuit. Um, so the ability to find the item you want to purchase, add it to your cart, go through the whole checkout product process, you know, register, checkout, all those form inputs. Um, and, you know, there's so many ways to tackle it. People do get overwhelmed very frequently. But and a lot of it is based on the framework you choose or like how you're building your user interface components, like modal dialogues. Those are commonly inaccessible. How are you building this modal dialogue? Or, I mean, are you using the same modal dialogue everywhere on the whole site? Um, if you fix that and, it, and that trickles through everywhere else, then 
then you could fix things based on the components like accordions, modal dialogues, hamburger menu. Um, but yeah, or, or you just kind of go through and fix all the issues you get. Um, there's also like other tools like paid tools like um, uh, like sort site and site improve and those spider your site, uh, find all the issues through all the pages and they will, you know, just give, give you a list of all the issues and you can fix it in the order you want. Um, and they'll like uh, site improve gives you points and says if you fix this issue, you'll gain this many points. Um, and then you have a donut chart that shows, you know, you have a score that's 50 or 60% accessible. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's tons of ways to tackle it. So something I should have asked you before, and I'll maybe I'll just edit it in this way, but how much of an impact do browser updates have on accessibility, either fixing things or breaking things? And I guess one thing I'm thinking of is Safari has made a big change in iOS this time around, or will as of iOS, iOS 15. And I don't know if you've even looked at the betas yet, but I, I just wonder in general what your take on uh, updates to browsers is in terms of accessibility. Yeah, I mean, accessibility is always determined by the browser and the screen reader. Um, and you can have, if you have a bug in the browser or the screen reader or both, then it may not work right. Um, so yeah, the screen reader can do, be perfect, but if the browser doesn't, you know, render it correctly or whatever, then there could be problems. Like, um, I deal with Safari a lot. So one issue I know, like Safari on mobile Safari, they always support an input type equals date to display the date picker where you choose kind of like when you set a calendar event within right. your iPhone, you get that same date picker on a mobile website. Um, but Safari for desktop had, had never supported input type equals date, whereas Chrome did. And then Chrome, you get like a calendar view um, that was built by the browser rather than by the web developer. Um, so I, I like when um, you use the native elements built by the browser. And it's good for web developers because you don't have to be responsible for the accessibility of that component like the date picker. Building an accessible date picker is very complicated. Um, so if you forget about that, it makes life easier. Um, but uh, in Safari on desktop, their date picker, they, they came out with it and it's not actually accessible. Um, it's not screen reader accessible and I don't think it's keyboard accessible either. So you'll, you'll, you'll see this, you'll have this phases. Like, I don't know how long it'll take for Apple to make their date picker accessible. Um, and sometimes when they release the new things, those new things will not be accessible. And then it takes a few years before they then make them accessible in the newer versions. Have you looked at the beta for uh, Safari for iOS 15? I haven't. Uh, I used to look at betas a lot more um, when I had more time on my hands for that. But now, like, I just don't even bother because things will change so much and everything right. will be so buggy. I just kind of I'll wait for the real release to come out. But I, I, think, I think I saw some of that controversy with, um, you know, the bottom, like moving the address bar from the top to the bottom or something. Here's, there's that. And then there's, you know, an increased level. I think this may be mostly on the desktop version, but increased level of transparency, which gives me a concern as a somebody who cares about contrast a lot, who's, who's low vision, but I haven't played with it either. So I won't, I won't dig into that too deeply, but do you have a process when, 
when the new version comes out? Are there tests that you run or just things that you do to sort of get help yourself get an understanding of what might be different in the browser? Like you're going to look at those date pickers right away and see whether Apple's fixed it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I used to do this more like right when WWDC would come out with the new betas, I would install it and see what are all the new accessibility features, new assistive technology Apple's built. Or then I would test out, like if I knew there was a bug in the previous version of Safari, I would go test it in that new version and see if they fixed it or not. Um, and I don't do that quite as much with the betas. Now I just do it with the the full releases. Like I do, I'll install it as soon as the you know full release comes out, the final release, I install that. And then, yeah, I might check out the date picker right away to see did they fix this um, or just, you know, kind of look. I have like a page with all the HTML five inputs like all the form controls and inputs have a demo and i'll just go check that demo out in the new browser and see if it looks different if it works different with the screen reader and does that mean that you ever have to change alley tools to account for that or is that not even relevant because you're mostly testing against accessibility standards or, or, or is that right yeah for alley tools when i change it is if um, i'm just like apple adds maybe a new capability um, like in the desktop of Valley Tools, they added the ability to take screenshots with um, an extension. So you can right click and hit um, copy screenshot. So I added that or on the mobile Alley Tools, they didn't, you couldn't have extensions for mobile Safari. And then Apple added the ability to add extensions for Safari. Right. So I added those. But as far as the testing tools, like the JavaScript that does the testing, that doesn't really have to account for different browsers and their bugs. Like the browser bugs come and go, really, it's just looking at the HTML code and the RE code and all that. Um, and it, it it tests kind of, you know, not even thinking about the browser. Anything we haven't talked about that you, th- you think we should have? I mean, I could plug the Austin Accessibility Meetup, which I'm a co-organizer of. You don't get the chance to hang out with accessibility people very often because there aren't many people who do it. Uh, usually you're like the, the few at your company um, and there's not many people like Austin has a, a good community of accessibility folks but um, yeah we, we haven't been able to hang out in person in a while very true well hopefully uh, we'll see one another at CSUN or at Access U coming up real soon so uh, Paul J. Adam thank you so much for joining me on Parallel I will put a link to your website which is pauljadam.com and which has uh, links to all the many things you do alley tools and all your tutorials and demos and presentations and is there anything else that you particularly want to point out that people should should look at on that site yeah the guides are good and then the resources page um, resources page is like any accessibility links that I've found and I'm like, oh, I'm going to need to save this to give to somebody again in the future. Um, I save it on the resources and I try to update that when I find there's broken links. Um, but when I learn something new, I'll add a new category and just start tracking things like math ML. I don't deal with math anymore because Atlassian doesn't do math stuff. Um, but I, you know, I have all that stuff saved and well, you know, one day when I need it again, it, it's there too. And I, and I have a lot of demos that I save for future reference and to share to folks to show them how to, you know, fix the problems that I report in the accessibility reports and all that. 
Very cool. Well, thanks again for being here. If you want to follow this podcast, you can go to relay.fm slash parallel. You can follow us on Twitter at Parallel Pods or follow me personally at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Send those guest suggestions, feedback, all the good stuff. And uh, we try to maintain a 100% accessibility rating. We'll be back in two weeks. Actually, we'll be back in four weeks. I'm going to take a little break, uh, but we'll be back in four weeks with another great episode. Bye for now.